Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. From my personal mobile studio, my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. And uh, today we're going to talk about the overriding modern survival philosophy that drives everything we do here at the Survival Podcast. It's going to be our subject. It was the. Uh, it's going to be based on the uh, the article that is on the site called Modern Survival Philosophy, recently featured on LewRockwell.com. The article's been there a long time, and I've talked about each one of these subjects individually in complete shows, honestly. But I thought it'd be a good time to kind of just pause. And go over all this stuff again. It's a good refresher for those who've been around maybe since near the beginning. And it's great material for people that are new to the show to get an overall understanding of what's driving what we do. Because sometimes you'll hear what I'm saying and it may not make complete sense to you because you don't know where I'm coming from with it. What's, what's the background? In other words, if you want to go learn algebra... You have to understand multiplication, addition, subtraction, and division. And if you don't understand those and the rules and the order in which they're done, then algebra will always be a mystery to you. For some of us like me, it's still a mystery, but you get the analogy. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and talk about uh, a few house cleaning items. Let's go ahead and knock out the uh, the promotional stuff first. Uh, do please visit our sponsors. Uh, we have some great sponsors on the site. They're in the right-hand margin of the show. Uh, Check out Tactical Response Gear. Let's call them sponsor of the day. Uh, James Jaeger is a great guy. He's committed to supporting the show for an entire year as a sponsor. Uh, that's a big deal for us. First person ever to do that. And he's just a stand-up guy and runs a stand-up business. Uh, if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth more than 25 cents an episode, consider joining the uh, Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade and get exclusive content only available to members. Come on down to the Bug Out Camp Out Region 5 Get Together in Gulfway. Link in the show notes will tell you all about it. Uh, consider signing up for Wilderness Ways Dirt Time 09, San Bernardino, California, last week of August. I have no idea if there's any positions left there or not or how many are left. Uh, I haven't talked to Alan or Dude for a while, uh, but this is going to be a great week-long event. Uh, really, really huge. Last I heard, we had 14 people from the TSP audience going out there, so you'll get to meet a lot of other survival podcast fans and some other great folks. I think they're limiting the headcount on the event to 100. All right, so I knocked out house cleaning for today um, with the, the promotional side of things, I guess. But let's look at uh, some other things that have come in is some questions on the blog because they're actually going to tie in today. Yesterday I did a show on debt, and I talked about getting out of debt, and I gave you a piece of advice that some people are a little bit concerned about, and that was you pay off your credit cards and get rid of them. Just get rid of them. They're basically a venomous snake, and if you play with it long enough, you're going to get bit. And a couple commenters came up with the, the typical objection and it's nothing against you guys because it's not something that has an easy answer. It's not even an easy answer to find if you go looking for it, uh, but it has an easy answer if you know what to do, and that is, well, if I cut up my credit cards and I cancel my credit card accounts, won't it hurt my credit score? The answer is yes, and you don't care because the only thing your credit score does is help you get more debt. 
Now, you'll, you'll say, well, what about when it comes time to buy a house? I need to get a mortgage payment. And without credit cards, there's no way I'm going to get a mortgage, pay, uh, mortgage, uh, a mortgage loan for my house. That is complete nonsense. Now, if you want to get a no-down payment uh, mortgage to buy a house you can't afford, it's true. However, if you'll do the following, this is how you handle the situation. Number one, you locate a mortgage provider that does their own underwriting. That means they actually look at your life, not just your number. And there's plenty of them out there, so you need a mortgage provider that does their own underwriting. The next thing you need to do is have a substantial down payment, 10% minimum, 20% is better. If you're not making huge payments to the credit card companies, and you can actually afford to buy a house, and you're renting smart while you're getting ready to buy, a two-year period of time is plenty of time to save up twenty dollars to $30,000. That should get you into most entry-level homes if you're buying your first home. If you're not buying your first home, if you're selling a home and buying another home, you don't have the problem in the first place. All right? Next step, make sure uh, that you keep the same career for at least two years. Next step, don't buy a home you can't afford. That's it. If you do that, if you go to any good solid mortgage provider that does their own underwriting, between 10 to 20% of a down payment, uh, you're debt free. You've been debt-free for a long time. You paid off all your all your stuff, and uh, you've been in the same job or at least the same career field for two years, and you have verifiable income. You get a mortgage, even today, even with oh we can't get a mortgage bullshit. That's how people bought homes for a hundred years in the United States until we decided that everybody deserved a mansion and ruined the entire market for everybody. That's how it was. So there you go. There's the answer to that question. Um, if you have a bank that does their own mortgage underwriting, it's probably a good idea to develop a relationship with your banker, your personal banker. Uh, when you buy a, your first car, if you have to more, you know, get a loan for any portion of it, go to them, get your loan. If you buy, a, you know, you want to start building a little bit of local credit with your bank, that's pretty simple. If you have a, you know, you want to buy a, a used car for three thousand dollars, let's say, uh, you know, kind of a first car, you have a thousand dollars in their bank, and uh, you need to borrow half of the car payment. They'll make you the loan and you'll establish a relationship there. So there's plenty of ways to get around that. Now, one thing I want to point out to people that think they're playing the, 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 the game with the credit cards to get the credit score and all this other nonsense, let's say you have a $25,000 credit card, you have $10,000 of uh, debt on it, and you pay it down to zero. Right as you pay it down to zero, your credit score will spike, and very shortly thereafter, your credit score will begin to drop. Do you know Why? Why would having a $25,000 credit card with a zero balance on it make your credit score go down? Because you have too much available credit. So in other words, you have the ability to go $25,000 deeper into debt. So if today, with you in that position, I loan you $100,000 and you only have $100,000 in debt, tomorrow you could have $125,000 in debt and you now owe 20% of your debt to somebody other than me. And I have to worry that that debt may cause you to default on the debt you have to me. So don't play the game with credit cards. You know, millionaires don't use credit cards to buy houses. I'll leave it at that. All right, so let's get into modern survival philosophy, and uh, let's talk about kind of my ten principles that I try to do this show based on. And, and number one is probably the most overriding important one, and that is that everything that you do 
to prepare for disasters and improve sustainability should improve your life and your lifestyle even if nothing ever goes wrong. And what I mean by that, let's look at a couple common preps. One thing I tell you to do is have some cash, right? Have a little cash reserve pile. No downside. Having some money put away outside of the banking system that you can put your hands on if you need it in an emergency has no downside. It is savings. It's no interest savings, but it is savings. Storing food. Food goes up in price. You store food, it's a good, if nothing else, it's a capital deferral. Uh, which is kind of a business term. And when I talk about storing food, I'll explain that a little bit. Growing your own food in a garden. When you have a good garden in the backyard of your home, it improves the value of your property, and it makes your family able to you know, have, have a more healthy lifestyle. Having a bug-out location. You buy smart, you find a good bug-out location, a place that you can fall back to if you need to. You put a nice little place on it. You start to build it up and make it something special in yours. If nothing ever goes wrong and you never need to run there, never need to fall back there, or you don't decide you just want to retire there because it's where you want to live anyway, worst thing that happens is you have a nice piece of investment property out in the country somewhere that's going to appreciate in value because they ain't making any more dirt, as my dad used to say. And that's really the overriding theme, that all of the things that we do, becoming a better rifleman, a better pistol shot, a better shotgun shot, learning to understand and how to use your weapons safely and effectively, makes you better able to put food on the table as a hunter or defend your home if it's invaded by a burglar, not just looted in a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. Plus, you have more confidence, and most people that shoot find out very quickly that it's an enjoyable pastime. Every single thing that we do, down to having a bug-out bag in your vehicle. I can't tell you how many times we've been somewhere and we've grabbed something out of the bob just because it was convenient and it was there. Um, so just kind of get that into your mindset. And as you're doing things and you're trying to prioritize, what do I do next? Ask yourself the question, does this, does this action help improve my life even if nothing ever goes wrong? Or is it purely insurance against disaster? And the things that are purely insurance against disaster, if they're expensive or complicated, generally should go lower in the priority. Now, you have to make your own decisions on these. We'll get to that in the final point, but you, you, you kind of get my overriding theme here, I hope. Always focus on how can I make sure that my life is better because I'm doing these things. Alright, next one. Growing your own food isn't just for hippies. That's, just, that's the best way I can put it. There's this, this typical view of growing the organic garden that there, it's always a vegetarian you, man. I don't want to go to the store and eat that poison food, right? And, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, running around barefoot and, and you know, that's what people think of from the mainstream. And I know most people listen to this show, but that's, that's the mainstream view of the organic gardener. You know, man, let's eat some granola and hang out in the pepper patch, right? That, you know, so that's not what growing your own food's all about. What we have to understand is a 100 years ago and back, almost everybody in this country grew their own food. Everybody. It was just what you did. It was one of the reasons people came here, because you could carve out a little place, whether it was in the beginning of suburbia or out on your own 40 acres you could get just for showing up and being there before the next guy and claiming it. 
and you could put food in the ground and grow it, and you were entitled to 100% of the production. That's what brought people to this nation. And when you grow food, it does a, 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 an entire plethora of things to improve your lifestyle. Number one, the action of doing it, I believe this is good for the soul. It connects you to the earth and it reminds you of who and what you really are. And that's not... The, 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 you know, the, the guy that grows the special vegetables in the back, uh, right? That's not that level of, uh, of, of spiritualism or, or phony spiritualism or whatever you want to call it. But the human being, one way or another, exists on this earth as part of the planet. You, you cannot separate man from the earth. We, we, we coexist, and without, without the earth, we cannot be here. It has to be the way it is, the things around you. You're driving down the road right now, let's say, and you look out your window, you see all those trees. There will provide you oxygen. And we are not, if we live smart, we are not, you know, some kind of vermin on the planet. That toxic CO2 that you exhale, that the EPA wants to regulate and call you a toxin producer, that toxin actually provides for those trees. We, we exist in a, in a homeostatic state between each other as long as we don't start destroying things. And when you start growing your own food, be it with growing vegetables or you know tending things like trees and shrubs and permaculture type crops, either way or both, you become connected again to what being a human is really all about. And it starts to create a sense of liberty in your heart. One of the things I'm looking forward to discussing with Lou Rockwell when I get to appear on his show is that one of the biggest reasons you should promote survivalism is it'll create libertarians. And if you're not a libertarian yet, hold on to your seat. You're going to turn into one in time if you keep doing this stuff long enough. You might actually even figure out what a libertarian actually is sooner or later. Because when you grow your own food, you provide a a need that you have, that you have deferred onto somebody else, you take control of it back into your life. And now that you control it, you're less likely to make some kind of a deal you really don't want to make because you have less dependence. So growing your own food brings you independence. And it's one of the biggest reasons to practice it is a tenet of modern survivalism. The next thing is, flat out, I believe this, 100%, taxes theft. You know, there could be a place for tax in society. There's certain things that the government should be doing, but they should be vastly smaller. And almost all the tax dollars that are sucked out of the American people today are theft. And I'm not just talking about income tax. Social Security tax is the biggest theft ever portrayed on the American people because the money's not even there and it's not used for what they say it's supposed to be used for. It's in a multi-trillion dollar hole right now because the money's extorted. So the response to the fact that tax is theft is that you find every way you can to legally reduce your taxation. We can talk about the income tax being unconstitutional. I believe it's unconstitutional, but I believe that our legal system has allowed it to exist anyway. And if you try that nonsense, you try not paying the IRS, they will show up and they will get their money, whether it either means putting you into a place where you're an indentured servant to them until you pay them off or putting you in the pen for a while to make you think about it so that you'll be a good little drone when they let you go. That does not mean that you can't get a good accountant, set up a business, be 
begin to deduct things that other people don't deduct and live like a rich person even if you're poor. And what I mean is more think like a rich person even if you're poor. Rich people do not follow the order that most people in America do. Most people in America earn, then they pay tax, and then they spend. Wealthy people earn, spend, and then pay tax on what's left. You can reverse that situation. I can't go deeply into it today. Another thing that you can do, though, is you can set up a sustainable lifestyle that allows you to reduce your income level voluntarily. And I'm not talking about living like a pauper, but what I'm talking about is having a lifestyle that lets you live like an upper middle class person with a lower middle class income. And lower middle class people pay taxes on a lot of things, but they really don't pay any personal income tax when you look at the way the tax code is written today. It's it's the, the mid to upper middle class that pay the majority of income tax in this country, followed very closely by the rich who pay a disproportionate amount. But if you can go into that lower sector of income, which means you do not work as hard because you work as you choose, but it involves developing a sustainable lifestyle first and working the system first to provide for the ability to do just that. So you know, you got to take this stuff and do what you want with it. Again, I'll kind of wrap up with that thought. The next one, though, I'm not going to go too deeply in because we just did an entire show on it yesterday, but debt is cancer. And I have also taken some, you know, like I've seen like commentary about me when they talk about my blog and my show on other people's sites. And I see people, especially from like not really the survivalist and the sustainability world, but the financial world say, well, he's a little bit extreme on this debt thing. You know, I mean, come on. It's like cancer. You got to have, you got to have debt. I mean, that's, you know, how are you going to make it? Listen, debt is cancer. You can use debt as a tool. But if you don't know exactly what you're doing, exactly why you're doing it, and have a very precise plan to eliminate the debt once it's been put into place, it is a tool that always works against you. And you don't see it, and it is a silent killer, just like cancer. That's why I call debt cancer. This is what I mean by that. You Think about the two guys we talked about. They're both 28 years old yesterday. The one guy's living a smart, sustainable lifestyle. His lifestyle does not look as good as the other 28-year-old who has the exact same job and makes the exact same money. Looking at the guy that's living deeply in debt. Nice wife. Couple young kids just starting out. Nice vehicles. Nice home. Big MasterCard account. Good guy, working his ass off, but using debt to get things today that he doesn't want to wait till for tomorrow, as opposed to the ant on the other side, who's slowly building up so that when he's 38, he has most of these things in place in his life already and paid for. Looking at the first guy, the grasshopper, he looks healthy. Just like a cancer patient looks healthy that's told, hey, you have a malignancy somewhere in your body. And they go, I feel fine, I look fine. And the doctor says, it's there, we need to treat it. And uh, don't get into alternative therapies and all, don't write me about that. I'm a big believer in them, so you don't have to convert me. But one way or another, that cancer is there, we need to start acting on it. Believe it or not, some people will go into denial and refuse treatment because they feel okay. Inside their body, that cancer begins to grow and destroy them from the inside to a point at which when they actually start to have symptomatic results from it, when they start to feel sick, it's often too late and it's invaded and spread throughout 
their body to a point at which it will destroy them or they will have to nearly be destroyed through intensive therapy and they might come out the other side, but it will be a, a terrible experience. The guy that's 28 years old with the good paying job, living a life of debt, is going to have that same experience in his life over the next 10 years. His marriage will be stressed. He will spend so much extra time working, trying to dig himself out of the hole that he continues to dig, that he won't know his children as they grow up. He'll either be divorced or near divorce or in a miserable marriage at 38 because of the stress level that is on both of them. He will be being destroyed underneath by debt, and at 38, when he wakes up to what he has done, he will have to go through a very miserable but not unrecoverable experience to get out of it. The parallel to a hidden cancer and the way that debt, uncontrolled, affects a person are so close, they should scare the shit out of anybody with clear eyes and a clear mind that looks at it. It's absolutely an identical process. And you wouldn't play with cancer just because you might be able to get something cool to happen with it unless you were an idiot. And I'll leave it at that because I've made my mistakes with debt too, folks. I wasn't always an ant, especially in the debt world. I got my ass into over $25,000 worth of credit card debt, but I paid it off, and we will not use credit cards again. That's all I can tell you about that. The next one, though, is that food stored is an investment. I kind of mentioned this in the everything you do is, uh, is designed to make your life better, but a lot of times when you're trying to talk to a partner about starting to do some of these things, and you start talking to one about storing some food up, your partner will have a tendency to say, hey, well, wait a minute, we're going to spend more money this way. The reality is you're not. If you practice the fundamental of eat what you store and store what you eat, it drives me nuts. I talk to media people, you know, and they say, well, you know, what can you store out of the grocery store? And I'm like, well, anything in the center of the grocery store will probably store well. Anything in the produce section has things that you can do to it to uh, buy it in bulk and then store it, you know, vacuum sealing, blanching and freezing, blanching and dehydrating. And they're like, oh, yeah, potted meat and spam. I'm like, do you like potted meat and spam? No. Then don't store Store potted meat and spam. It's complete asininity, or ashattery, I think is what a lot of guys call it on the forum, to go out and buy crap you hate just because there's a myth that it'll store well, or even if it does store well. We store the things that we eat. One of the recent videos I did was how to take a can of clams and a can of salmon and make a salmon slash clam chowder, a thinner version than the thick New England version, with a little bit of evaporated milk and some butter and some potatoes and some celery. All of the items that were in it could either be provided fresh from your own garden or out of long-term storage. But yet it was something that you, I, you know, I defrosted a bowl of it that I froze and ate it this weekend. Because I wanted to, because it tastes good. When you take that approach of I'm going to store food in, in my home that I eat anyway, you actually save money because the price of food has continued to incline in price over time. So what you're actually doing is a long-term based capital deferral. And what I mean by that, it's the same thing that Southwest Airlines does with gasoline. When, 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 they don't buy gas, they buy jet fuel. But when, when jet fuel drops in price and they see a good opportunity, what Southwest Airlines does, and this is one of the reasons they're profitable and other airlines aren't, is they'll go ahead and spend the money today. 
and they'll buy a massive contract on, on fuel going two, three years forward in the future. And when fuel eventually raises its price back up, they have a fuel cost advantage against their competitor. They, it's not a true capital deferral because you haven't avoided spending the money till later, but you've created a situation in which you're going to defer the, the, the increase in cost into the future. If that makes kind of a deep economic theory, but the simply put is, you buy food, you keep it in your house, you eat it anyway. When you're eating it today, six months after you bought it, it would probably cost you more to go out and buy it than it did when you bought it six months ago. Food stored is an investment, and it's a major insurance policy. Look at this swine flu thing, and next week I'm going to do a show on what we've learned from the non-event of swine flu and what we need to prepare for in the future and why pandemics have not gone away just because this one wasn't one and the dangers of going laps on it. But one of the things we can learn is that Mexico just came off basically a five-day nationwide lockdown. In the major cities in the interior of Mexico, they shut down the country for five days. It was a non-event. Even in Mexico, the number of people that died was not that big a deal for Mexico. People die in Mexico of diarrhea because of how third world parts of that nation still are. If Mexico will shut down the country for five days for a non-event, if we ever get a real pandemic or even a real epidemic, don't you think the United States will shut us down for five days or longer? What are you going to do in that time? So if nothing goes wrong, that food is there as an investment. If something does go wrong, that food is there as an insurance program. It is absolutely fundamental as a tenet of modern survivalism. The next one is to understand disaster probability so that you don't make bad decisions and so that you can plan effectively going forward. See, disaster probability is all about what's most likely to happen, not period, but to you. And the order of disaster probability is based on geography. It's personal. Individual disasters, number one. Then neighborhood-level disasters, number two. Then small region, then large region, then national, then global. And you start with planning for the disasters that would happen to you. Things like losing your job. Things like a very localized weather event that damages your home. That kind of moves into the neighborhood-level disaster. But you get my point. Death of a spouse is a disaster. It's a horrible disaster. Death of a child. Massive disaster for the individual. Your neighbor who says, I feel bad for you, it really doesn't affect his life. But it affects you at a very deep level. The first things that you do should ensure against loss at a personal level. Then move to a neighborhood level. Then move to ensuring yourself against the loss at a small region level. Something citywide. Now, here's the funny thing. By the time you get to where you're comfortable, if anything goes wrong in the small region to even, you know, kind of large region area, I've got it covered. You've pretty well locked down national and global disasters as best you can. You know, other than buying one of these underground nuclear shelters or something like that, if that's your thing and you got got 100 grand to blow, I mean, you can go ahead and do it. I'm not doing that. That's not the way that I want to build my lifestyle because I want my lifestyle to be better even if nothing goes wrong. It's up to you where you go. But it's important to understand the things that are most likely to happen are not a globalized, total end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario. They can occur. 
It's one of the reasons that we do these things. But what's more likely is a massive recession in the economy that causes millions of people to lose their... Oh, crap, wait, that happened already. You see what I mean? That we're in the middle of that right now. The shit may have not hit the fan for you, but it has hit the fan for millions of Americans. And one way or another, it has affected your life. If you own a home, your home ain't worth what it used to be. Even if you bought smart, you may not be in as bad a shape as most people, but you have lost value in your home because your your neighbors were stupid. So the shit has hit the fan for you, just in a very, very mild way. But the guy... Even the guy that you know lives a reasonable lifestyle. He's not. He's not the 28-year-old guy living on credit with a trophy wife. All right. We're talking about the guy, the other 28-year-old guy that I talked about yesterday. He's in the middle of paying off his mortgage. He's even going to pay it off accelerated in 10 years. He's doing the best he can. He loses his job, and so does his wife. They've got a major problem, too. Now, they're in a lot better situation to deal with it. But my point is something like that obviously can happen because it's happened right now. So start with insuring yourself your family, and your lifestyle, and build out from there. And it will take care of itself in time. Very, very quickly, uh, believe it or not, after about two years of living this type of a lifestyle, you will not believe the progress you've made and the changes it will have made to your mental state and your mental attitude. The next one is to understand the concept of renewal and alternative energy and to harness it and use energy efficiencies, but to do all of them for economic reasons. And, you know, I don't want to go off on another one of my tangents about how I think that the, the, you know, global warming thing is a scam. But, folks, it's a scam. The founder of the Weather Channel said that global warming, man-made by CO2, is a scam. Now, please don't try to explain to me how, you know, man has not been good to the atmosphere and to the planet. I agree wholeheartedly. Pollution is a problem. Destruction to the planet is a problem. Have we affected the climate? Probably at least a little bit. But it's not CO2 that is the problem. CO2 is the lifeblood of the ecosystem on the planet. There are times in the planet's history where CO2 and O2 levels were much higher than they are today. And life on the planet thrived, both during periods where there were humans and at times before humans. The planet of Mars has had its planetary surface temperature raised by the same approximate percentage as the Earth's surface temperature did while we were warming up. And right now, if you ain't noticed, the surface temperature of Earth is in a cooling period. So don't try to save the manatees and the polar bears by putting solar panels on your roof. No. Figure out, how can I create a solar-based system for my home that gives me redundancy if the, man, you know, the, the, the system of the electrical grid is compromised and continues to save me money even while that's available? You do it for economic reasons, and you'll do it smart. And if you want to save the planet with solar, then get on board with making solar more economical. Not just through government subsidies. We need to be, you know, the the reality is that the industry has, for one purpose or another, kept a premium cost on these systems. They should cost a lot less by now. If you think what the average $400 laptop computer is built out of and capable of, 
A photovoltaic system that harnesses the sun's energy, turns it into electricity and makes it available for use, should not cost what they do today. There are ways to drive the cost down. And the more people that go out and use re-harvesting of existing technology and build their own systems and do things like that, or go out and buy a small system and pay the cost of integration to the home and then continue to expand it on their own once they have the base in place, the more people that do that, the more the market will be driven down in cost. And the more that happens, the more it will become available to everybody. And at the same time, the people that are spending the money to buy the stuff will benefit from it immediately. Not just if the grid goes down, and not just because some warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart of saving the manatees. That's a weak sales message. That's an extremely weak sales message. And you guys that are eco-freak tree huggers, that's why nobody listens to you. Because you're carrying the wrong message. You take the message of economic viability of sustainable sources of energy to people. You figure out ways to do more with less and present it to them. They'll buy it. You show up at somebody's house and you say, look, I'll put this stuff on your roof and this stuff in your box. Here's proof hard that if you spend $10,000 on this system, it will pay itself back in about 10 years. And it will be 100% profitable to you after 10 years. People will buy it. Not everybody. A lot of people don't have $10,000 to buy it with. A lot of people don't see the value of that long-term investment, but a huge portion of society with brains would buy that system. You guys just have to figure out how to get the people that you think are your heroes at GE that are actually damaging the planet to freaking build and market that. And until that happens, we have to be smart and put these things together. The same thing, I feel the same thing about wind turbines. The same thing about generators. If you buy a generator, be smart with your generator. I'm gonna tr- I've been talking about doing a generator show for a long time. I'm going to figure out how to get an interview set up with the guy that's offered. We're going to do a generator show. Here's a question I have. If you know about generators, email me an answer to this at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. I've been looking at generator sets. And let's say I'm looking at a generator set that has the ability to produce uh, uh, 10 kilowatts, 10, 10, you know, 10,000 watts. Would I be better off buying two that have the ability to produce 5,500 watts, having redundancy built in them and actually having more output? And how much more complicated would they be to set up with a junction box and a converter box at my switch panel my, uh, you know, on the outside of the home? That's a question that I have I want to get answers to. Uh, because in some cases I figured out that I can actually buy two smaller generators for about the same price as one larger generator, and it just seems me for, to be from a redundancy standpoint that it would be advantageous. If I lose one of them, sure, I don't have the amount of power that I did while they were both there, but I still have half the power. And if I lose the big one, I have no power. So that, there's just a side thought there. If anybody knows the answer to that question, send it on in. But that's how I feel about um, renewable energy. So, you know, take that and do what you want with it. The next thing I'm a big believer in is the ownership of land. That's why I'm so big on finding a bug-out location. Once you are in the financial shape to go in and either pay cash for it or make a very good down payment, get a very low interest rate, and have a very low payment on it that can be paid off well short of the 30 years most people finance things for. And I don't care if it's buying a vacant piece of land somewhere out in the country, putting a travel trailer on it, paying somebody to stick a well in there for you, and setting up some, some very small system of solar activity, uh, basic some, some 12 VDC to put some lights on and stuff like that, and a propane tank. So that at least you can go there and camp and hang out and have vacations out in the country without paying for it. If nothing else, you have a piece of land. Land is wealth. 
And I've had people take exception to that before because they've said, well, you say land is wealth, but what about things like eminent domain? People have lost any kind of asset you can think of. Down the gold has been seized from people. So I don't want land, I want gold. Well, yeah. Did you read your history book? There was a hell of a lot more gold seized from the public during the reign of FDR than there's been land seized from people with eminent domain. And the difference is when people take land with eminent domain, they tend to actually pay market value to actually get the land. They don't just seize it. They do have to buy it. I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's wrong. I think it's disgraceful, and I think that there is probably a place for it with certain things, but the way that it's being used today, uh, people like Thomas Jefferson would probably be heading off to Washington with an AK-47 if they were around to see it today. But, that said, most people's land is never seized by eminent domain. That's like saying, well, if you buy a house, a tornado might blow it down. Well, sure, but most people's houses aren't blown down by tornadoes. So where do you live? You have a house. You know, some people lose their houses to fire. Hello, right? So, it does. there's no good reason not to own land. Now, the reason that I feel land is wealth is it has the ability to provide for you long term. It has the ability to be handed down for generation upon generation. Over time, it does appreciate in value if you didn't want to sell it. But I'm not even thinking about selling land. What I'm really thinking about is what is the value of that land to you by owning it. And there are, and we've talked about ways to find a good bug out location. I probably need to go ahead and do another show on that. Uh, it's a great topic people really seem to enjoy it, but just on the eminent domain thing and on taxation on your property, if you buy smart, if you buy land in a place that makes a good bug out location, it ain't likely to be seized for eminent domain. You, you don't want it on a major highway system or a major road system. You know, you want to be off of that path. That takes away half of your problems right there. You don't want it to be in a town. That takes away the other half of your problems. I haven't really heard of a lot of people with a rural piece of land off the beaten path, out in the middle of the sticks, having it taken away by eminent domain. And I also know that people in that type of a situation tend to pay low taxes. You need to look for land where the city nearest it is probably not likely to annex it. If you buy smart, land can be the wealthiest investment you'll ever make in your life. And it can be something that if you tend the land right and you start applying permaculture techniques, which is another show we're going to start talking about this week, is really intensive permaculture. I'm going to try to do that maybe Friday. Um, You can build a legacy that you hand down through your family, and at the same time, it provides for you today. Owning land is a real form of wealth. And it is important for the people of this nation to start buying up the land because the government is moving into a mode where it looks like they're going to start taking the land that's not available and using it for their own purposes. There's going to be more and more land set aside for environmental reasons by the government. It's going to become unavailable for ownership by private individuals. My view is get what you can and get it now. And that doesn't mean run out and do something stupid tomorrow and get a panic. It just means start looking. It costs zero dollars to shop and when you find the right piece of land, you'll know it, and you'll figure out how to make it work for you. The next tenet, the ninth tenet, is to have pragmatic resources, as I call them. In other words, life insurance. Right? This doesn't sound like a survival topic. Listen, if you die, who's going to take care of your wife and kids, or your husband and your kids? Or if you're a single parent, who's going to take care of your children? If one of your kids dies... 
The divorce rate after a child is lost... And I'm not even talking about like the, the really hard things, like you know, mom's on the way to take Johnny to soccer and they get hit by a car, and mom lives and Johnny dies, and mom has guilt even though she did nothing wrong, and dad in his heart somewhere secretly blames her. You know, that's really tough. I'm talking, you know, Johnny goes out with his friends, gets crazy, does something dumb, and gets killed. Falls off a bridge, playing on a bridge. I mean, I don't know. Something that no parent, there's no way either parent can really accept, you know, and there's still a little bit of that blame. The divorce rate is huge. I hate to sound morbid, but you got to insure the lives of your children for a significant sum of money. Not that you, you don't retire on your, on your kid's debt. But you need to be able to do certain things if you lose a child, if you want to hold what's left of the family together. A real survivalist takes care of his family. He has integrity and he's responsible. And if you don't ensure your viability, your, your income level, to make sure that your family can go on without you, and you don't ensure your ability to take the time that you'll need to heal if you lose one of them so you can keep the rest of them together, you're not a survivalist. And, I, and if you're a, you know, I hate to put it this way, you're not much of a man either. That's, a, that's an intrinsic responsibility that you have, and it doesn't cost a hell of a lot. I mean, I'm talking 20 bucks a month for most young males to put enough insurance to make sure that if they're gone, they're able to, their, kid, their family's going to be able to go on without them. Having cash on hand is another pragmatic thing that most people go, well, that's not survivalism, having a couple thousand dollars in a firebox hidden somewhere. You should be hiding guns and bullets. Folks, there's plenty of times when you need cash. Now, will cash always be worth money? It might, and it might not. The dollar could be devalued to nothing. So you do some other things, like put away some silver coinage or some gold, or both. But cash makes sense. The pragmatic things that, you know, just make common sense that a good financial advisor that was really looking out for you and had the best interest of your family at heart would tell you, make sure that you're insuring your income. Don't put 100% of your money locked up in a frickin' retirement vehicles and annuities. Diversify what you're doing. Have some cash. Have Take your money and put it in more than one bank. If you're just saving cash, I don't care if it's CDs or just money market or what have you, don't put all your money in one bank. If you have 200 bucks, I mean, you know, until you build up some significance. But once you have a few thousand dollars saved or more, have two bank accounts in two separate banks, totally divorced from each other, just in case a bank gets closed, just so you can still get to some of your money if you need it. Don't put all your money into your retirement account. I don't know how many people I've talked to, how much do you save? I save 10%, and they're real proud of themselves. Where does it go? It all goes into my 401k. How much cash do you have in the bank? I have a couple thousand dollars. Well, why don't you have more? Because all of my savings goes to my 401k. Why? That's what the guy on TV said. The guy on TV is a freaking idiot. He doesn't live in your world. The guy on TV is wealthy. He doesn't get 10% into his retirement. It means nothing to him. He has extensive cash flow. He's probably written books. He has intellectual property that's con- 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 you know, continuing to give him redundant income. Susie Orman doesn't live in your world. Don't listen to her advice. She's an idiot. When she gives a a normal person advice, she's not qualified to give you advice because she doesn't know what it's like to be you. Jim Cramer is a freaking moron. You listen to him, you took a bath on a bunch of stocks. Jim Cramer is an asswipe. 
Don't listen to these people. They do not know what they're talking about. Not because they're bad people, not really because they're dumb, because they don't live in the reality that you do. Susie Orman says, buy bonds, I buy bonds. Yeah, you know, how much money do you think she made last year? Half of the money she invested, she invested just so she doesn't pay taxes on it. So she tells you, well, put your money in your 401k. There's an immediate return. There's an immediate return there. Because you don't pay taxes on it. You know what? If you're a middle-income or lower American, you ain't paying much taxes anyway on that money. Now, it will shelter your Social Security taxation. You will get out of that 7.5%. But it's not the money she's saving. And those people just don't get it because they've been living that wealthy lifestyle for way too long to be able to understand the person that gets to the end of the month and is out of money. They make a living selling to you, but they don't know what it's like to be you. So have these pragmatic steps. And I do think it makes a lot of sense for most people to try to figure out some secondary source of income. Develop a craft, develop a skill, do it online, do it offline. I've done some shows on that before. I'll probably do some more. That's a good topic to go into again. But if you have a secondary source of income, one, you're not 100% dependent on your job. Two, you're a business owner. So you can take advantage of tax deductions. And three, you're developing something of value beyond showing up and holding a desk down. Something that will make you useful if the economy completely crumbles into nothingness. Be an entrepreneur. These are pragmatic things that do go into the modern survival lifestyle. And before I give you the final one, I'd like to point out to you that if you've been following this show and you've been following the things about my life that I've been actually doing, you'll see that I live this philosophy. This isn't just something that I sell to people and then I do something totally different. This is how I live. And the things in there that I haven't done yet, I haven't installed solar panels on my home. I haven't figured out how to do it economically yet, and I don't want to put them on my home in Arkansas until I live there. Because when I put them on my Arkansas before I live there, somebody might take them off and steal them. (laughs) So I'm, I'm researching that one. Everything else I've told you, I'm actively doing. Every single thing. Including, yes, being an entrepreneur. I've taken some heat because this show actually makes a little bit of a profit now because people enjoy it enough to voluntarily support it. And because I'm providing something of use and I'm providing something valuable, I hope. And that is exactly what I'm telling you to do. Now, I'm not telling you to do exactly the way that I did it which will come into my final point here in a second. But what I am telling you is that America has screwed a lot of stuff up. And we have a government that's run amok. And we do not have the liberty that we had 10 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. But there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity for people that will work hard and develop something unique and special. And I'm telling you that inside of every human being is the capacity to develop something that's unique and special. This show is what I've developed. And I've had a lot of success in business in the past, but this is the first one that I really see as a contribution to society. Something that's special. That I was actually, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel that way for the first time in my life. And it took me a long time and a lot of struggling and a lot of work. And I'll tell you what, this is my encouragement for you in finding that for yourself. It was worth every single minute. It was worth the nights I was up till 2 a.m. trying to figure out what to do next, trying to figure out what people would want. And in the end, 
It wasn't even done that way. I just did this show one day because, you know, I just wonder if anybody would listen to this. I feel like I have to do something. This is what I'm going to do, and I will see if people care. And I don't know that I'll ever really make any money at this, but I'm going to give it to people. And hopefully some people will take it and want it and use it. And if I get one or two people that tell me I've made their lives better, it's a success. And that turned into my... You know, my my special thing. You have one, too. And it may not be a podcast. For a lot of people, it isn't. There's a certain thing you have to do if you're going to be a podcaster, and one is the ability to speak well. And not everybody has that. But you have something, and I'm challenging you today to start thinking about it, figure out what it is, and develop something for yourself, something that no one else controls and no one else can take away from you. Even if it's becoming a great knife maker or a bow maker or a great programmer that, you know, hires his work out instead of works a job. From one end of the spectrum to the other, there's something you have that's special. Develop it and make it something you own. Make it part of your wealth. Make it part of your skill set. And make it part of your marketability. And that's a big different thing for the Survival Podcast for me to say that. But it's important that you understand your value. And realize that the more you can do to share your value with others, the more valuable you become. And things will work themselves out. And my reason that I believe in this philosophy I gave you today is because I'm living it. And I've been living it for a while. And it's made everything in my life better. Just like I said in point one, it's designed to improve your life even if nothing goes wrong. And that brings me to point ten. You have to have your own philosophy, your own rules, your own survival plan. It all has to be about you and the people that you love. You can take what I've given you, and you can do whatever you like with it. You can change the rules as long as they fit your life, and you understand why you're changing the rules, and you understand what you intend to do with them. You do not have to do everything I say. In fact, you probably should not. If you do everything you want and it turns out to be the same, great, wonderful, we think alike. Most emails I get start out with, Jack, I don't agree with everything you say. My response is great. That means you are a human being with independent thought and the ability to learn, act, think, do, and be on your own. But take that capability and apply it and take the information that I give you, take the information that's out there and countless other resources. There's so much more information today about these things than there were 25 years ago. When survivalism wasn't modern survivalism, it was that crazy guy that lives in a bunker. It's available. It's there. You take it. You form it because your philosophy is more important than mine. Your philosophy is what's going to guide you. I'll be here five days a week doing this show, helping you figure out how to live that better life. But in the end, you're the one that's going to choose the things that you're going to act on, and you're going to choose not to. And there's nothing wrong when you choose not to act on certain things. You have to make them fit your life. I'm very conscious of you cannot give a one-size-fits-all program in just about anything, but certainly not in this. It's not reasonable for some people to go out and buy a bug-out location right now. It's not reasonable for some people to have a full year's supply of food, and it's not reasonable for some people to practice permaculture right now. You have to figure out what fits. You have to figure out where you want to go to and draw your own map there, and then take the tenets, the principles, the things that really guide us all and make us all common forms of life on the planet. Apply those to your plan, and that will get you where you want to go. 
That's the way to figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.